Welcome to the Knowledge Nuggets podcast hosted by John Ingram. Okay, and welcome to John Ingram's Knowledge Nuggets. John, floor is yours. All right, guys, thank you. So we are episode number 12 of John Ingram Knowledge Nuggets, September 1st today. And uh, I'm your host, and as you know, with this episode and all previous and in the future, I don't expect to have any disclosures on this topic. So our motto, why do we call this program Knowledge Nuggets? Well, we hope that you can just spend a little bit of time and expand your mind. So this week's topic is going to be ammonia blood levels. What does that mean? So the format, if you guys have never seen before, we hope hopefully take a noteworthy topic each session. Uh, we hope to give you a powerful, impactful little uh, segment where you can take home a little bit of knowledge with you. And if you see that gold nugget in the screen, that's kind of a take-home slide. You can screenshot that, and you can use it tomorrow, hopefully, when you go into, into work. And we hopefully that you'll become a better clinician where you have another added piece of knowledge to your to your repertoire. So it's hopefully just going to be about a 12 or so minute highly impactful segment. Then after that, we follow it with a surprise, something we call Perfusion Gem of the Week, just a couple minutes of something really unique. You never know what that's going to be. And after that, we follow it with panel discussion and questions. And if you guys either are watching this live or in the future or in an older, older session, please email me at john.ingram at perfweb.us and I will always answer your questions, and I'm very open to comments and suggestions for future program topics. Okay, so ammonia blood levels, what does that mean? So here you go, right off the bat, we have a, a, a golden nugget slide, so we want to define ammonia, and just kind of a review here about what we hopefully learned in school and in our training, but also, you know, if you see somebody with a, a ammonia level that's not normal. Should you be concerned about that and what does that mean? So ammonia is a waste product and it's primarily performed, primarily formed by um, bacteria in the, in the intestines during the digestion of protein. So if it's not processed and cleared from the body appropriately, excess ammonia can accumulate in the blood. Ammonia is normally transported in the blood to the liver where it is then converted into two substances, one called urea and the other one known as glutamine. So the urea is then carried to the kidneys where generally it's eliminated in the urine. So if this urea cycle or this urea process does not complete the breakdown of ammonia, ammonia then builds up in the blood and then the problem is it can pass from the blood into the brain. And we're gonna talk about some of the effects of why that is and what happens when that happens. So just to give you some reference, the normal range of ammonia in your blood is usually somewhere between 11 to 32 micromoles per liter. Ammonia is highly toxic. It's a waste product. Now normal ammonia concentration is generally below 50 micromoles per liter, if you want to just kind of remember a rule of thumb. But when it increases to 100 micromoles per liter, it can lead then to disturbances of consciousness. I'm going to talk about some of those. Blood ammonia concentrations, though, of 200 micromoles per liter 
That is then associated with coma and convulsions. So generally when we talk about ammonia blood levels, we can get concerned when the ammonia blood levels are elevated, but there's also such a thing as a low blood ammonia level, but we're going to talk about today an elevated blood ammonia level. So what is an elevated blood ammonia level? Well, ammonia, as I said, is a nitrogen waste compound that is normally excreted in the urine. An elevated blood ammonia level, of course, is an excessive accumulation of ammonia in the blood. An elevated blood ammonia level occurs when the kidneys or the liver are not working properly. And that's kind of a good thing to keep in mind. Why is someone's ammonia level high? That's going to tell you that the kidneys and the liver are not functioning, one or, one or both, not functioning properly to eliminate this waste appropriately. And so therefore, if they're not working properly, there's going to be a higher level of ammonia waste in the blood. So ammonia, like many other waste products, can be toxic and is toxic to cells at an elevated blood level, that, and it can also affect many parts of your entire body. Elevated blood ammonia can affect a person at any age, and it can happen for a variety of reasons. It's actually fairly common in infants in whom the disease can be related to some sort of genetic condition. That's one, that's one aspect of it. But in children, commonly it's related to RISE syndrome. You guys have heard of RISE syndrome. Basically, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But it's a dysfunction of your liver, and as we said, liver not filtering out the ammonia very well. In adults, however, it's going to indicate uh, kidney or liver damage or some underlying metabolic disease where you're not metabolizing, usually in the, in the liver, properly. It can also be due to drug or alcohol abuse. Again, those are probably going to detrimentally affect your liver function and or kidney function. So what are some of the common symptoms of an elevated ammonia level. This is kind of a little bit of a take-home slide because if you do a lot of walking through your ICU or, by the way, ECMO, and you see somebody that has some of these symptoms, a lot of times they may have an elevated ammonia level. People are confused. They have fatigue. You could have loss of appetite. You could have nausea. And you can also have pain in your back and your sides and in your abdomen. You can also have muscle weakness. Now, symptoms that might indicate a serious condition are when you start having absent or markedly decreased urine production. You also are going to see decreased levels of consciousness, and you're even going to see things like passing out or unresponsiveness, changes in mood, personality, or behavior. You know, the person is a, uh, not, not themselves. Their, 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 uh, their personality is not normally like this, and they have these strange mood changes and strange behaviors. The family will usually pick up on this or the bedside nurse pretty, pretty acutely. Sudden confusion for no reason also. And this is all indications of the high ammonia level going across that blood-brain barrier and affecting your, your neurostatus. In infants and children, a congenital disorder, disorder of ammonia metabolism, uh, usually something that's disrupting the, uh, the urea cycle that we talked about. You could have a hemolytic disease, a disease of blood type incompatibility between the mother and the fetus. Any, any type of liver or kidney damage, like we mentioned, 
and then Rye syndrome, as I said before. This is a condition usually triggered by some sort of viral infection, but it causes increased ammonia levels, usually because of the dysfunction in the liver, but it results in brain and liver swelling and dysfunction. So Rye syndrome is a very big concern in the pediatric realm and not fully understood, I don't believe. Now, the causes in adults can be alcohol or drug abuse, which we're going to see with some frequently, frequency, medications such as diuretics and narcotics, excessive exertion. Excessive exertion can cause it where you're producing so much waste products, and if you have any you know, decreased function of liver or kidney, you may not be removing that ammonia rapidly enough. GI bleeding can cause it, also heart failure, which basically has to do with decreased liver and kidney perfusion. Therefore, they're not functioning as well. So some other causes in adults can be hepatic encephalopathy, damage to the brain, but this is subsequent to the liver failure causing the high ammonia level. Kidney disease, again, poor kidney function, kidney stones, kidney failure, any type of liver disease or damage such as cirrhosis, hepatitis, or again, poor blood perfusion to the kidneys, heart failure, severe dehydration, and intestinal bacteria overgrowth. Remember what I said earlier, that ammonia is uh, produced by a bacterial breakdown of the protein in your intestines. So if there's some uh, malfunction there, this could cause a high ammonia level. Ur urinary tract infection organisms, and the, and the primary uh, culprits here are your Pseudomonas, Klebsiella's, Morganella, and Coronibacterium. Smoking can also be a contributor to high ammonia levels because, by the way, there's a lot of ammonia in cigarettes. So what would we treat it with? Well, remember I said it's a product of protein breakdown. So somebody who's having a high ammonia level, we would limit their protein in intake. We can give them medications to reduce the ammonia levels, lactulose, antibiotics, certain antibiotics do this. Medications which break down the ammonia, rifaximin, larathonine, and aspartate ha happen to be some. There's others that help our bodies break down the ammonia. You could treat the urea cycle deficiencies. Arginine, sodium phenylbutyrate, and sodium benzoate are all three things that help uh, treat our, uh, help accelerate the urea cycle process. Dialysis may be in order, but this would only be if it's uh, like above 1,000 micromoles per liter. Would you go into renal or hepatic dialysis to really try to clean out and decrease those ammonia levels? And in very, very severe cases, you might require a kidney or liver transplant. That'd be very severe cases for those two. So why do we care about this? What are some of the complications? Well, if left untreated, it could bring a pretty rapid onset of dementia. Encephalopathy would, would certainly be uh, something that would be evolving. Uh, it could result in organ failure of the liver or kidney. Then you would have edema. And of course, you can put the person in unconsciousness and even into a coma. So you don't want to leave high ammonia levels circulating for very long. All right, so we're looking now at the gem of the week. And uh, if anybody who's watched before or doesn't watch before, the gem of the week can be absolutely anything I decide to come up with. Could be a trivia question, could be on tips on how to succeed in a virtual interview, perhaps. It could be a, a wonderful job offer that's out there that we might want to discuss. We've done that in the past. It could be something in the perfusion news that comes out. It could be a product recall. 
I might find something interesting that goes on with an interesting product, something that occurs in cele uh, celebrating for Fusion Week. We could also take a famous quote, such as this one by Einstein, that we took a, a quote by Einstein one week. We could also talk about a great upcoming uh, conference, such as Joe's conference, the New Orleans conference. We could talk about an upcoming meeting. So this you got to change that to 2022, John. 2022, there you yeah, go. You gotta yeah, you got to change that to 2022 because uh, New Orleans is now, of course, uh, I don't think they're going to be back for a while. They got really hammered with Ida. Oh, did yeah. it really? Yeah. Oh, that hurricane? 20, yeah. I don't think it's going to be 2022 either. It might be 2023. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so this week's Gem of the Week is going to be tips for a successful virtual job interview. And I know at our institution, the guys there, and girls there on Perfusion team are doing quite a bit of virtual interviewing this day. So how would you fine tune and make sure that you did a good virtual interview? Now, people always know how to go out and, and Google search the top 10 things to do to prepare for an interview. So some of those are true, but I'm trying to concentrate on when you're doing a virtual interview. So number one thing you want to do, check your internet connectivity and confirm your camera and microphone are working. But ensure you have a fast internet connection. If, if you generally don't have a very fast interconnection, internet connection at your house, maybe you want to upgrade it or go somewhere where there's a very high-speed interconnect connection at your neighbor's house or something, because you don't want a jittery, jumpy sound or video when you're trying to you know, uh, interview with somebody. You want it to go very smooth. You could, should consider a webcam. The cameras on your computers sometimes are good, but a webcams are almost always better. Sometimes they come in with a built-in built microphone that's going to be a little clearer than your little laptop. And a lot of people even recommend that you do a headphone because then the sound quality, they say, mm -hmm. is quite a bit better. You need to close down all the programs, all the other programs running on your computer other than the video conference that you're having. Your computer will run faster and smoother, most likely. But getting your equipment to work at the last minute is very stressful, and you should not procrastinate in doing those things above there that I've listed. Do those a day or so or a week or so ahead of time so the last minute it's all ready to go. That's all about number one. What about number two? You need to think about the camera and the lighting. When you put a camera up on your, uh, let's say it's a mounted camera, Generally, people don't know how far away to put that camera. They put it too close. They put it too far away. The general rule is about two to three feet away from yourself. But you need to position the webcam just above eye level. A lot of people make a mistake. They mount the camera too low. And what the interviewer sees is that they're looking up at the person. They're looking up through your neck and through your chin. When you point it uh, above eye level, just about a couple inches above eye level, this actually gives the interviewer the proper perspective where they're looking at you as they would if they were sitting in front of you. And you may have to use a laptop stand or put your laptop on some type of uh, books or something to get that webcam slightly above your eye level. You should, this is a mistake people make also. You should have the light source in front of you. Place yourself facing a window if you can find one to take advantage of natural light. Because if you have backlight, if you have light behind you, it casts a shadow on your face. And that's what you don't want. If you don't have a window, use a lamp, but use a lamp with a very low glare bulb in it, okay? And then always do a dry run and test things out ahead of time. Call a friend of yours, 
do the live video uh, test with a friend of yours and see how things are looking so that when you go to do it, you'll know how everything's going to appear to the interviewer. What about number three? Set the scene. Now, you want to set yourself up in a room with no distractions. You don't want any noises coming through. You want your background to be very plain and pleasant so that the interviewer is not distracted by what's going on behind you. Joe, do you remember this um, thing we were watching one time? It wasn't on, on PerfWeb, but it was another uh, thing we were watching. And the person had an ocean scene, an active ocean scene going on behind them. Yes. Waves and birds flying. It was a fake scene. Yes. It was some type of video or something. Yes. Highly distracting. Remember that, Joe? Yes, very well. Well, and I'll, I'll add to that. In the COVID world where we're doing all these things from home and people don't necessarily have a studio set up, right, just like for this interview, I'm sure you guys remember this making the its way around when we were first starting to see news broadcasters at home. And there was a news broadcaster who, you know, did the best he could with his office at home. Um, and he was giving the local news, and just in the, the, the background was his cat, who you couldn't stop looking at the cat because the cat was giving itself a bath. So you, you looked at the newscaster, but then you just keep looking at the cat. You know, have no idea what he said. It was mm -hmm. just too distracting and funny. So, ocean cat, you know. Well, not only that, uh, but, uh, but I'll also point out that when you do these fake backgrounds, um, like we were, uh, I was watching a different, uh, a different channel, um, doing our opposition research as you, as we like to call it. Um, and, uh, you laugh, I know. And, uh, we do a lot of that to see what other people are doing because, you know, there are some, some things that are actually really good and we want to adopt those good things. Absolutely. But when you try and cut yourself out and this person was online with one of those fake backgrounds. And every time they would move, they were, they were trying to be really cool and wearing this cowboy hat. And then the cowboy hat would kind of half disappear because the, the, the software wasn't working terribly well. And so keep it simple. Yes. Make it a pleasant background. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant. It doesn't have to be a fake background. You, you know, you're in an interview. And what you want people to focus on, I so much agree with you, John, is you, right. nothing else. You could be just have a blank wall behind you if you want. It would be yeah. better than yes. having uh, having uh, something else. But you could put a little table with maybe a little flowers or something like that behind you. But avoid the fake backgrounds. They don't work well. They really don't. Yeah, the, the I think that's called green screening or something. Oh, yeah. Is that what it's called? Yes, Where, green screening. And, and the problem is that most people can't, really afford to buy the very, very, very expensive one like they use on the weather channels and stuff where the person is using green screen, but you never know it because it's so sophisticated yeah. that, it, that it cuts the person out instantly. Well, any cheaper version, it's delayed. And so you look like you're getting, you know, silhouetted and cut off as you move just a slight amount. And I'm sure that's very distracting to the person you're interviewing with. And you don't know it's happening because you're looking at them and you're not looking and seeing what's happening with yourself. Exactly. Very, very, very good point. Right. Keep it simple. Sure. Test it with your friend, somebody, whoever. Yeah. Do some, some, and then go back and watch yourself. Because yeah. what, you know, go video it, you know, so people can, so you can see how you look and present. Mm -hmm. As an employer, I want to 
know about you. I don't, I, it's important to know, John, you bring up such good points. It's so important for us to recognize when somebody has taken the time to be prepared and everything works and you can get through the, the interview process and have a conversation with them and you feel like it, like they took the time to make sure their end was operational. Well, and more specifically, because we've been doing a lot of WebEx, Microsoft Team meetings yes. recently. Yes. And if you have a scheduled time, you know, you've checked all this out in the beginning, so good for you. But now it's meeting time. Don't wait to start logging on and doing all those things a few moments or even minutes before your meeting because sometimes something's crashing or something this or you need to get situated. And so it's okay to go ahead and be in the waiting room waiting. Be early. You know, you would arrive to a normal interview, you know, 15 minutes early, early right? Or more. Or whatever. But, you know, mm -hmm. you're in plenty of time. If you're 15 minutes early, you're already late. Okay. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, it's just showing that you took the time to um, not waste someone else's time. Yes, absolutely. As an, as an employer, um, that is something that I take, that, that you get a lot of credit when you're prepared and on time. Yeah. And one more thing. I mean, this is off topic a little bit, but I think we're saying learn something about the people, whether it's an interview or meeting, that you're going to be talking to. Absolutely. I just recently had a meeting of 10 people, and I knew one of them, but I took the time to look up who are these people so when they're speaking to me, I can understand their perspective and what they might be after. And same thing with the job interview. Learn about the position or the company, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the people that are in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm glad I, uh, I, when I finally got around to picking this topic, I was hoping exactly what you guys are doing because you guys have interviewed and interview a lot of people, and you're probably doing a fair amount of virtual, and I was really intrigued in seeing what your comments are, because there's so many things that can distract away from what you're trying to do, which is to have a good interview. And so this next one here, you know, it sounds obvious, but make sure you've turned off everything yes. you can think of. The TV and cell phone are obvious, but also close some nearby windows and eliminate outside noise. There's people that live in parts of the country where they, it's, you know, nice temperature outside. You can leave the windows open. Next thing you know, you hear a lawnmower going by or some kids running by or who knows what, or dog barking. And all of these things are going to take away from how well you've thought about how your interview is going to go. And this also includes all your messaging services yes. and your social medias because, like, you're on the computer and all of a sudden these things are popping up on your computer, making little bubble sounds and alerts that you're getting a message. And your interviewer could probably hear some of these things, you know, yeah. and they're distracting to you as well. So we're going Agreed. to see some more of these things here. Now, here's the one I like a lot. You can adjust the screen of your, of your, of your program. So a lot of these video calls allow you to see yourself and the interviewer on the screen. Oh. You can experiment with the placement of these windows so that they're displayed for the best arrangements. So in other words, put the interviewer's window right underneath your camera so that when you're looking at the camera it appears to the interviewer like you're looking at the person smart if idea the interviewer screen at the bottom and you're doing this every time you talk to the person but the camera is up here 
you're going to look like, you know, less than appealing. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like that one a lot. Yeah. Good. So now, oh. of course, this goes back to interview. Be prepared, but prepare yourself for all interview questions that you can possibly prepare for. And one thing you can do in a virtual interview that you may not get away with so easily in person is you can have your resume in front of you but and, re and refer to it as a reference. If the person asks you a question, you can actually refer to it if you needed to. Also, what Tammy just said, prepare some common questions for your employer because you've researched your employer. You should know if you're interviewing with, you know, HET there, that they have X number of accounts and approximately X number of employees, as opposed to interviewing for a hospital staff position. You know, it's so much more refreshing when the person's interviewing, you're interviewing, says, oh, uh, you know, uh, I understand that you guys cover four or five hospitals in the Houston area, as opposed to saying they have no idea what you cover and how does it work. You know what I mean? These things are easy to find out. We have a small field. You can make some phone calls, send some texts. Somebody somewhere is aware of sort of how, you know, you guys operate there in Houston and give them some general idea. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so here's the one I like, and it, it, it applies for all interviewing. As I said, some of these would. But don't memorize your answers word for word. Memorize what you're going to say, but you want your answers to flow naturally as if you're speaking. And what you said earlier, Joe, is practice them out loud, record yourself, and play it back. You will learn an enormous amount about how you sound to the other person. When you play it back, you'll be like, oh, geez, I didn't know I sounded like that. I need to fix this. Whereas you thought it was fine at the time. When you play it back, you'll find out maybe it wasn't. And also, keep your answers concise and impactful. Nobody wants somebody to ramble on on a simple question for five minutes, right? They want to have an you know, impactful, concise conversation and be sure and stop speaking when you've completed your thought. That, yeah. that pregnant pause shows that you've completed your thought and the interviewer will then interject something else and you're not tempted to keep rambling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Monitor your body language. You're not going to be able to shake hands on a virtual interview. Sit up straight. Try to smile a lot, keep the camera at eye level, and try to make con constant contact, eye contact with the interviewer. You have to try to make a connection here, but you're not in the room with the person face-to-face -to, -face to be able to make that connection. So you have to go a little bit extra here to try to come across as a, uh, a valuable person that they would want to hire. Now, dress for success. You know, dress as if you were interviewing in person, just because... You happen to be at home, and everybody's doing everything from home now. That, to me, that doesn't necessarily, you can dress however you want. And another, there's studies that have been done, many studies have been done, that when you dress appropriately for any situation, it naturally instills more confidence in you as a person. Have you ever been somewhere, Joe and Tammy, where for whatever reason, not necessarily an interview, but you showed up somewhere and you were, very underdressed for the situation. Or overdressed, because that happens to ladies sometimes, and that's embarrassing too. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's distracting. You know, you try to overcome it and put it out of your mind, but you never can quite get it out of your mind because you feel self-conscious. Self you could also overdress if you've ever been someplace 
where it was casual Friday and you didn't get the memo or something like that. And you could feel very, it, it, it hurts your confidence to be dressed uh, inappropriately. But, but if you dress appropriately, especially in an interview, it's going to make you feel more professional. You're going to come across more professional and you're probably going to be able to speak with more confidence. That studies have shown it does have an impact on your psyche. <clears throat> and what about, what I said earlier, making a connection? You're not going to be present in the same room. It's more difficult to make that personal connection with the people. So make sure you speak clearly and make sure you, you speak, I wouldn't say loudly, but definitely speak with a good volume because you're relying on a microphone to transmit your voice over to them. Share an outside interest. This goes back to interviewing in general. You want to show that you're a well-rounded person. Again, you're having a little more hurdles to go through with making a connection with people. And I remember, Joe, a year or so ago, we did a talk about interviewing, and you were very big on the outside interests mm -hmm. that the people have. You wanted people to work for you who really had outside interests other than work. Is that correct? Absolutely, 100%. He still says that in every interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I interview people, it's very low on my priority. I want them to do good at work. I don't care what they do at home, but that's the exception to the rule. A lot of people want a well-rounded person. That shows most of the time that they're going to get along well with your other coworkers, is right. what that also indicates, because they're going to have interests. They're going to make friends, most likely. They may even become good friends and go out and do similar things with those people, and they're going to work better together at work. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to have a long-term employee and not be you know, revolving doors so much. Right. And I think I have a couple more. So, but, you know, be yourself like in, inter, inter, uh, like in any interview. Um, your, your interviewer, um, you know, it's more difficult that, for them to catch on to your enthusiasm because you're coming through a screen. So make sure you're expressive with your words and when you're answering your questions, but always be yourself and come across genuine. And number 11, the final one, within 24 hours or so, you should always send a thank you email to everybody was, that was in the interview with you. Sometimes it's a, you know, a team interview. Uh, thank them, of course, for their time and for the opportunity to interview. A lot of people don't use that word, thank you for the opportunity. And mm -hmm. that's really valuable, I think, because these people took their time to interview you, and they really didn't have to. They could have looked at your resume and tossed it out, never gave you the opportunity. And you could sometimes just put a sentence or two in there reiterating, your unique strengths of why you'd be a valuable employee, but make sure you keep it concise. This is not the time to rehash the interview and to rewrite the script and try to fill in all the gaps that were left out. Just a little quick nugget, but keep it concise if you feel like you need to do that. And I think that that's the end of that one. Mm -hmm. So as I said before, you guys can email me at home